Good morning and welcome to yet another episode of Divinity Connecting the Dots. We're back with, uh, you know, amazing guests uh, talking and connecting the dots between all matters between public and planetary health. I have two amazing, amazing animal rights activists um, and advocates with me today. Um, Ellie Nakajima, um, who is from Animal Alliance Asia, and also Elia Khan from Animal Alliance Asia. Welcome to the show. Please introduce yourselves. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nidhi, for having us. Uh, okay, I can start. So my name is Ellie. I am one of the co-founders of Animal Alliance Asia, currently director. I'm originally from Japan. And um, yeah, I am currently based in UK, but I am planning to be traveling around Asia uh, for the rest of this year. Uh, over to you, Elia. Hey, thank you, Nivi, for having us. Um, nice to see you and everyone here. My name is Elia Khan. I'm based in Pakistan. Um, I'm the strategy lead for Animal Alliance Asia and the Pakistan coordinator. Um, yes, and I'm hoping to work in South Asia and Pakistan for a long time for the animal advocacy movement. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing where you're based and what your roles are. And um, obviously the topic we're going to be talking about today is what's Asia got to do with veganism. And I'm told Asia's everything got to do with veganism, you know, because veganism somehow has, you know, deep ancient roots in uh, Asia, the entire continent, the world's largest continent, obviously. So let's start before we get in the depths of that. Let's start with your individual whole food plant-based or vegan journeys, you know, however it is that you choose to identify yourselves. Who wants to take a go first? Sure, I can start because I'm sure Aya has a lot more interesting story to tell. <laughs> so I went vegan, I think about seven years ago now. Um, one of my first aha moments was when I watched um, a footage of beagles being released from cages. Uh, it was by an organization called Beagle Freedom Project. Uh, because I grew up with a beagle dog when I was a child, uh, I just knew how playful they can be, uh, what kind of personalities they have. Um, but this video I watched was really shocking because they it was the first time they were coming out of the cages for the first time in their lives after being experimented on for so long and they didn't even know how to walk out of the cages once they were out in the field they didn't know how to walk and it just completely broke my heart to see that and that's when I stopped consuming anything that was experimental animals so I went cruelty free first and yeah. then my journey started where I kind of connected the dots between okay so now I care about dogs and that's why I stopped consuming these things, but what about other animals that I'm still consuming? So that's how I kind of took one step at a time. It took me like a year to go 100% vegan. Um, but I have to stress that I was based in London, UK at the time. Mm -hmm. I still am, which is basically one of the most vegan friendly cities in the world, really? I am told. And it is. So my journey was pretty smooth thanks to all the options around me but also the communities around me there are a lot of vegan people that i could talk to uh, get advice from so for me it was a big privilege to be based here and yeah i'm going to talk about this more later but soon i realized that it's not the same for for people outside of london outside of europe outside of the us the situation is completely different and the vegan journey would look completely different too. And that's that's why we started AAA. Um, and in that regard, I'm sure Elia has a lot more interesting story to tell from Pakistan. Yeah, Elia. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so with my journey, it was very um, interesting because I had, uh, I had never heard the word vegan um, as such um, before. And the first time I heard this word was somewhere around 2016, 17, when I attended a lecture by, um, by a religious scholar on animal rights. Um, and to be honest, my first reaction to that was, what the hell is this person saying? Because um, I come from a Pashtun background in Pakistan, and um, we were known to be tribals and meat eaters. 
Um, and so there was a lot of influence of that. And um, the whole um, community prides itself on being superior because they consume more meat. So it, uh, you know, having those kind of um, culture, uh, sorry, uh, growing in such a culture, and then um, coming to face to face with something like veganism was very new to me. Uh, later on, I did start cutting down on meat and I went vegetarian around, uh, in 2017, but it took me a long time to go vegan. I went vegan uh, during the pandemic when I had the opportunity to cook for myself because there were, uh, there still are hardly any alternatives. So uh, coming up with the right kind of alternatives to go for, um, to go towards a vegan diet was um, some of a challenge that I had faced. And of course, um, I was still battling the idea of uh, how is it right to be vegan, you know, in a culture and society. Um, and I, it took me a very long time to make that connection. And I was high, highly reliant on information uh, from Western activists online that influenced me a lot. Uh, and later when I, joined AAA, I realized that, you know, not uh, all of these tactics are going to work here. This this doesn't make sense. So uh, it, it still has been a learning journey and I'm still learning and growing and trying to be a better vegan. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing both of your journeys. And, and you know, if I may reflect, um, they're very different, Right. So first of all, that's something that really jumps out um, at, at me. And I'm sure uh, our viewers picked up on that. Um, and Ellie, when you spoke about the Beagles and, and, you know, for you, it sounds as though the penny dropped when you were able to all of a sudden, um, you know, understand speciesism is, is what it's called. Right. And, and you're able to go beyond just the territory of human beings as a species deserving of compassion and and you were able to extend it out to other animals and that's how you got started and and as far as um alia you're concerned and you know obviously i'm south asian as well i'm of indian origin so you know we're neighbors and then share extensive history uh, as well. And uh, recently at an event, I was talking about how colonialism has impacted, uh, you know, South Asian and veganism in South Asia or the food systems in South Asia. And one of the things, you know, as per my research, I was looking into was the so-called development and the labeling of martial races by the British uh, colonizers. So I'm a Punjabi and, and I completely understand when you when you say, uh, you know, you're from the Pashtun, uh, you know, tribe and and a lot of us and, and our tribes were almost sort of labeled um, martial races and, and as though we're like born to war, you know, and, and, uh, and do that. And obviously with that, a lot of patriarchal vocabulary comes in and, and there's, you know, language associated with masculinity and meat and, and so on. So there's a lot of ascribing of that label to us that may have occurred during the colonial times. And, and then it has ended up impacting our food systems too. So I totally understand and relate to the cultural rationale and the and the you know the stumbling block around logic is to told this and I was raised like this and so was I as a Punjabi so I, I totally get that um and and you also mentioned that some of the tactics of how you talk about veganism and animal rights the way they work in the western world um doesn't necessarily cut it in Asia Right. So I'd love for you, um, you know, either of you to talk about, uh, first of all, like when you were introduced to the concept of veganism before you started your activist journey and started talking to other people about it. Personally, what were some of the deeply held beliefs that you challenged? and maybe started enrolling those in the immediate community like with you so Elia, like did you try to talk about it to your family members and and what about you ellie who were the first people who were the um recipients of your activism Elia, you want to go first ellie can go first it's it's fine i think yeah okay yeah i can go first 
Um, yeah, so for me, definitely, I started talking to my friends, good friends and family first, like any vegans would, I think. And it's usually the most difficult people to get through to because you're so close to them and you have the whole history behind. And that's usually the toughest crowd to get through to because I guess a lot of people might take it personally. Um, but what I did was I, I basically created a document with all the information I could find and I just gave it to my friends and family without trying to preach or anything and uh, I'm happy to say two of my best friends are now vegan and they have been vegan for the as long as I have been and yeah I'm very happy about that um, but I think to the people in Japan especially including my family I guess yeah going back to the the topic of colonialism it's a bit different in Japan because we were the colonizers and imperialists in Asia. But at the same time, after the World War II, a lot of things have changed, uh, where US has brought a lot of Western uh, way of living, including food system. That has changed a lot. That's when dairy was introduced to school meals. Now yeah. all the school meals have to have milk. And a lot of vegan activists are trying to, to fight that as well. But a lot has changed since then. And I guess, when we, whenever we talk about tradition or how things have always been this way, it's actually not that long. It's probably 50, 60 years. Mm -hmm. But we, a lot of people think of it as forever. It's always been this way. Um, so it is, it is quite difficult to challenge that, even though in Japan it, it is actually a new trend after the World War II. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is quite difficult to challenge that, especially because the term veganism a vegan is again a foreign word english word uh, so whenever we talk about it uh, use this word it's often seen as another yet another foreign concept that people are just trying to Im import into japan and because of that there's a lot of resistance to it and it's actually usually you know combined with sharing recipes like pancakes or some trendy mm -hmm. salads that yeah. a lot of people in Japan might not associate with. So there are a lot of things that we have to tackle in terms of, um, yeah, tackling belief system, um, helping people um, see that it's not just a Western thing. Yeah. It actually is about social justice and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, before I, I go over to Elia and we, we hear about, you know, the challenges faced by her and, and um, her early activist, um, you know, uh, target target audience and, and what she learned from that. I, I just wanted to ask you, is there, like, given that each of our Asian countries, you know, we're so heterogeneous, we're so complex and linguistically diverse. And it seems as though, at least in India's case, that there are certain local languages where you have words that mean veganism because people have been eating like this as part of their indigenous way of life. So is there a word in Japanese and, and if you speak Japanese that comes closest to veganism and, and have you experimented with using it? In Japan, unfortunately not. We don't have like the direct translation of a word that 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 has the same uh, concept behind it um in other languages like mandarin i believe there are there there is a word okay. and in countries like taiwan hong kong but however because these words are usually associated with buddhism and the way people eat because of the religion that has also been a bit of a challenge because when you use that word it's immediately associated with certain sect of a religion so people who don't associate with them that, themselves yeah. with that religion would then turn get turned off so yeah turned away so yeah there is that issue as well but yes yeah, like in japan the traditional buddhist monk food has always been plant-based um and i think there uh, the government has been trying to kind of um, utilize that for for tourism and there are now a lot of temples who offer vegan plant-based food uh, to people who are vegan um, yeah so I think there's a lot we can play with culturally 
and take advantage of as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and ensure that, you know, people have a value proposition that goes just beyond the trendiness of it, but also harks back to their uh, cultural beliefs. And in, in this case, uh, it sounds like it's more a religious connotation. Ilya, tell us about your experience. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so with uh, when I started off early on, of course, I was using the word vegan. And uh, like Ellie said, um, I did face a lot of opposition because it was such a new word. And to speak about this word, um, you know, uh, I have been confronted with arguments that are, we all know about those uh, simple arguments that people come back with plants have feelings and uh, veganism is not our culture and things like that. Uh, so I did think of uh, maybe uh, changing the the term uh, or coming up with a term that could be uh, adjusted or uh, replace the word vegan but then we think of uh, as you might know uh, urdu is very close to hindi and there is this word called uh, shakahari for example now but if we use the word shakahari in uh, pakistan it will be associated with the hindu religion and then we all uh, know about the Hindu-Muslim divide between the two countries. So it wouldn't have been as effective to use the word uh, uh, shakahari and uh, uh, or any other uh, word that came down to just plants. I believe that veganism is more than just eating plants. And to find a replacement for such a word is a challenge. And I think... Um, me, uh, we all did, our country coordinators and Ellie, we, early on, we did hold a panel talk around this, that is there a way to um, uh, overcome this challenge and come up with a word. So this has been something that, um, uh, that has been a challenge of communicating uh, the idea of veganism to, uh, to the people in Pakistan. And like you said, um, just like India, Pakistan has so many languages, so many different cultures. Uh, and I think that what might work in one part of Pakistan might not work in the other part of Pakistan. <laughs> That's how complicated it is. Yes. So um, I've been trying to under, like learn and understand um, a lot of the landscape of the country myself now. Uh, knowing that the rural areas play a complete different role as opposed to the um, urban areas. Yeah. And then the northern part is totally different from the southern part of the country. And they all have their own intricate challenges. So this has been something that, um, that I have been constantly trying to um, overcome. And the other part comes in, which is um, the aspect of colonialism as well. Uh, we, we understand how complex um, the issues have become over time due to colonialism in the region. Uh, we have some beliefs around milk and meat, and they're all coming in. Now we have this industrialization happening. We have um, so I'll go back to 15 years. I always say this. 15 years ago, we had a culture of not consuming meat for two days a week in yeah. Pakistan. And all of a sudden, that's missing. We have this mass marketing going into meat. We have this mass marketing um, going into selling milk products all of a sudden. And we wonder where it's all coming from. And this mass industrialization is happening right now. So this for me is a present challenge that I face. Um, and interestingly, the few alternatives that we did have in the market are slowly disappearing. Mm -hmm. And we see this pushback from the meat industry, which is happening to, towards the alternatives. So there are a lot of problems from the meat industry to the historical aspects to the cultural aspects and uh hopefully someday we'll find a way around how to navigate each of those issues 
Yeah, but you know, I, I have to say that with the kind of work that you guys are doing and how laser focused it is on um, being regionally sensitive, being linguistically sensitive, being culturally sensitive, you're already chipping away at this big challenge, you know? Um, so just, I'm, I'm so glad that we're bringing this conversation to, uh, you know, our broadcast partners and, and here at Javinity, and especially at Unchained TV, because I know that their majority of their audience is North American, you know, and, and white Caucasian. And, and they are, for, they're, they're hungry to understand how veganism is happening in other parts of the world. And it's very important for us to offer them this context about all the, you know, the nature of challenge that you guys have. So like moving on to segment two, um, I'd love to dive deeper into Animal Alliance Asia, the organization that you both uh, represent. So could you tell us, um, our viewers, a little bit about your vision, your origins? What is it that you're trying to achieve? Yeah, sure, I can do that. So our mission is really we are a movement building organization and we want to build a more sustainable, inclusive and effective animal justice movement in Asia. And we support and educate, mentor, individual advocates, as well as organizations across Asia. So we envision a culturally relevant, as you said, maybe an effective and inclusive animal justice movement in Asia. And we believe in local leadership. So that's what we're trying to uh, work on. Um, the origin of AAA really, it was 2019 actually, uh, another, um, advocate from Hong Kong, Angel, and I met in London when she was still around here. And uh, basically, both of us had the privilege of going vegan in London, first of all, but also having opportunities to go to conferences, trainings, workshops, offered like specifically for animal justice advocates in Europe, in the US. And I really loved these opportunities because like, when I first went vegan, I didn't even think about that until I, I found out about these opportunities that you can actually learn to become more effective advocate for the animals. <clears throat> and it really opened up my eyes a lot. And um, But at the time in 2019, we did not have anything like that in Asia at all. So Angel and I decided that we want to be a pioneer <clears throat> and initiate that kind of space for, for Asian vegans and advocates. Um, so we started then, and the first event we ever did was the Animal Advocacy Conference Asia in 2020. And I'm happy to say we just finished our third one last year in 2022, and we're going to continue doing that this year too. And it's been such an amazing journey for me and for the team. Uh, at the beginning, it was just the two of us volunteering on top of our full-time jobs. And... Uh, the conference that we did first really was the first ever space, like safe space for, for Asian advocate folks to come together and learn from each other. Uh, we really like diversity, equity, inclusion. These are at the forefront, always, always at the forefront of our work at AAA because without offering a safe space for people to come together, the marginalized voices will be marginalized further. And we need diverse voices represented in this movement to really reach all the communities. Like Elia said, one might work in one community in Pakistan, might not work in another community in Pakistan. We need leaders in every community across Asia. And for that, we need to be very, very inclusive and open and safe. So I'm really happy to say that we've been overwhelmed with so much positive feedback from our participants in the past, especially with their conference. A lot of people who are um, who identify as gender minorities or uh, queer folks um, who might not have a safe space in their own country, um, but they can come to our conference and uh, feel welcomed, feel included into the discussion. So it's been a beautiful experience for all of us. And people like Elia, um, our core team, our country coordinators, have approached us and uh, yeah we have been growing a lot since then with like-minded people from all over Asia and I feel very very grateful for everybody on, on our team. Oh I think I was on mute well thank you so much for sharing um, 
you know, right from inception, how you started as as merely like a dream and a vision and an idea uh, with two of you in London and, and how you recognize that it was really important for, you know, all of the Asian uh, advocates, you know, people with Asian ancestry sort of come together and, and to create a safe space and, and to create a platform which could lend, um, you know, become uh, their voice. So uh, you mentioned that the team has grown, the movement has grown. I'm just going to bring on uh, the screen um, the core team. So if you could talk to us a little bit about, you know, who these people are, of course, we have Alia on, uh, you know, the panel with us today, but if you could take us through a little bit about each of them, you know, what do they do? And, and then we'll talk about the coordinators as well. Yeah, sure. I'll be happy to do that. So this is our core team, uh, our dream team, really it cannot get better than this. <laughs> I'm so thankful to all of them. So yeah, I am the director, co-founder, and uh, Kaho, who is Japanese, she is a program coordinator who's overseeing all of our projects that we run at AAA, um, who has been part of our, our community from the very beginning of AAA. Mimi, who is based in Myanmar, she is our communication lead and she is the one who designs beautiful posts for social media and writes beautiful newsletters every month. Uh, she has been the face of AAA, externally facing basically. And Aya, who we have here today, is our strategy lead. Uh, she is one of the most integral part of AAA who basically um, has helped AAA grow and find our own space uh, in the animal justice movement in Asia. Um, Strategy-wise, uh, I have been learning so much from Alia and I'm so thankful. And I am usually the one who come up with all kinds of ideas here and there. And she mm -hmm. is the one who stops me <laughs> when she has to or supports me when we have capacity to. And uh, Gulam is our fundraising uh, specialist who has really tremendously helped us grow in terms of finances and, and finding grants uh, in the last three years. Yeah. And and then you also have coordinators. You know, it doesn't stop here. It's, you started as two and then there's the core team and, and then there are coordinators. And so first of all, before you even talk about, you know, specific people and the faces on the screen there, what what is meant by coordinators? How are they different from the, you know, the previous people who are based in different countries? Um, yeah, so we've always had country coordinators. We used to call them country reps. It's the formal title now is called country coordinators. Okay. And they are the most integral part of AA, I would say, because without them, we wouldn't have expertise uh, about each country. They right. are already, they are the people who are already part of the thri thriving vegan advocate community in their own country. They're all based in their country. They speak mm -hmm. the language. Yeah. They were born there, they grew up there, so they know the cultural intricacy and sensitivity in each country. And also the, the, the dynamics of different initiatives and individuals, groups. So that way we don't have to almost like step in. We're already there through yeah. our country coordinators, which is great. And um, they are the ones who constantly have conversations on the ground on a daily basis to find out what's working, what's not working, what are the cultural specific challenges and what's the solution going forward. So right. with their help, um, we have been building more expertise around uh, where are the gaps that we can help or support at least uh, to boost uh, the ideas of an individual advocates or organizations to flourish in their in their own country. Yeah, that is that is a you know, really, really good leadership strategy, you know, for yourselves as well as part of the core team and also to have um, country specific coordination. So I'm just going to quickly show. Um, so you're operating now in Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, Taiwan, the Philippines, Nepal, and, and then you also have a tech coordinator. Um, and, yes, and we actually have uh, someone in India now, Malaysia and Japan, Myanmar and Pakistan as well, who are not actually here yet. All right. Okay. So, so that is awesome, which basically means, you know, there's the entire map of Asia and then, you know, your mandate is to absolutely ensure that Animal Alliance Asia is represented in each and every part of the world's largest continent. Uh, this is, this is awesome. Um, 
So you mentioned earlier about the funding and you have a funding specialist as well. And, you know, you've mentioned how they've like their presence have eased a lot of, um, you know, concern around money because, you know, unfortunately, in the kind of world we live in without money, it's very difficult to do outreach. Um, how difficult really has it been? You know, because when we talk about persons of color, you know, people of global majority, you know, people from Asia, um, finding it an ever increasing unequal world, being able to get dollars to um, invest in, in this kind of a mission. Share with us a little bit about that journey. How has it been to get resources? I can talk about it for the whole day. <laughs> it's been a journey for sure. Um, I am very grateful and happy to say that we've got a lot of allies and supporters in the movement who have been supporting us without any hidden agenda from the very beginning of AA, which I would never forget about and I am forever grateful for um, in terms of uh, <clears throat> finding funds as well. And. I think we are a very unique organization in a way because we are led by Asian women who are based in Asia, uh, who speak the language. I think a lot, like most of us speak English as a second language, including myself. So obviously navigating in the, <clears throat> the, the funding space is a challenge. As a woman of color who doesn't speak English as the first language, there's just lots of layers of, of challenges for sure. Um, and uh, as I said, like I am very lucky to have had a lot of advice from, from people around me, especially women leaders on how to navigate in the space. But it is a challenge, especially because uh, of, of the things I've just said, who I am and who our members are, but also because the kind of work we do is a very long-term thing. Like we are movement building organization and movement building takes decades to, to, to see the, the fruit of it. It's not uh, something that can be measured immediately. How many animals are we saving per dollar? We, we can't really do that right now. It's very different from, let's say, um, <clears throat> some welfare uh, campaigns, which might be easier to, to get numerical impact uh, immediately so that has also been a, a, a challenge definitely um, but Alia here has been a, a great help in trying to 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 um, put our impact on on paper so we can talk about it which we have been definitely making a big impact but it's a bit more of a challenge to to talk about it um, yes it is a challenge and Gulam has definitely been a great help because he speaks the right languages which <laughs> I'm not very good at uh, but I know as a director of an organization I have to really get used to that because yeah that, that's where I come useful um, but um, yeah Elia could maybe share a little bit more about uh, strategy and uh, measuring impact in, in that space as well. Yeah thank you Ellie. Um... I agree, like um, measuring impact is tough for organizations like us because we have a long road to take um, and our impact will show um, in a few years time when we see the movement connect. Um, so we're, what we've done is to make things as simple as possible um, is that we've divided our strategy into two parts. One is our short-term impact and the other is our long-term impact. And for short-term, yes, we can measure um, how many people we're training. Uh, we can measure how many uh, people um, we are trying to help um, or, or build their capacities. But when we speak specifically about movement building, we can only look at uh, cues that we can find around us and observe those cues and see uh, where this, these cues are going to lead us um, in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years time. So it's, it's 
uh, it's going to be a lot of data sorting 10 years down the line. Uh, that's what I'm thinking, uh, because we'll be revisiting all of those things um, where we saw what, wh where we came across, what kind of data and how we build on that. So yes, it, it's it's a challenge, uh, but hope uh, I'm I, I'm a very positive person, so I believe that we do we can get through it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and optimism is obviously a vegan activist's best ally. You know, we 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 can't. Uh, do anything without our vegan optimism, obviously. Well, thank you so much for sharing about those challenges and also, uh, you know, hinting at the strategy that you guys are using, um, Elia. And it sounds as though you've, um, uh, you know, you've recognized, obviously, it's very difficult in movement building to really measure the impact of it right away because it is a slow burn. And, and you really need to break it out into value additive components on the way there and, and find a way in the short term to be able to create those um, chunk size, bite size business cases. Um, and, and it also sounds like communication and training people in, you know, in effective communication as to how to be an activist on behalf of animals is, is exactly where we're focused on at this point. Um, so, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about how human beings, we categorize animals in so many different ways. I mean, you know, we, we talk about beef herds and dairy herds. And ever since I, you know, started my own path of advocacy, I've since learned this uh, grotesque vocabulary. But keeping things simple, obviously, we're thinking about wildlife, you know, animals who like, yeah, they, they kind of like live in the jungle, you know, once in a while we might see them at a zoo. Um, then they're farmed animals, animals we believe we can absolutely exploit, eat and use for leather and so on. And then there are companion animals who are so close to it, in some cases closer than our even, you know, human family members. So, so I mean, just these three basic divisions show us the hypocrisy of human beings. So when you're looking at your work and not necessarily just funding, how does Animal Alliance Asia, um, if, if you do, sort of approach these three basic categories of animals who do you exist for do you exist for everyone or do you have space for all animals i can start and Aya, if you want to add please do um so we when we first started aaa we were always said that we cater for all animals including entertainment wildlife companion farmed animals because for one reason, because in Asia, we still didn't have the privilege to focus just on farmed animals. Like yeah. there's so many issues, but not enough efforts being made for any, any of them. Whereas like in the US or UK, there are large international organizations just focusing on cats and dogs, just focusing on farmed animals, but we didn't have that. So we always said that we, we welcome everybody who are animal lovers um, but over the years we have seen some shift in that landscape in asia as well a lot of a lot more um, international funds are going into um, more uh, welfare approaches in the farm and animal movement mm -hmm. also there there seems to be quite a lot of like uh, domestic donations for stray dogs and cats uh, companion animal efforts as well and wildlife um, so we are shifting towards just focusing on farmed animals. But at the same time, we are very aware that uh, there are like so many uh, far more dogs and cats organizations than farmed animal organizations or initiatives. Yeah. So through our projects, we are trying we are open to anyone to come to our events and um, who are not vegans maybe yet, who, who work for dogs and cats, but we might be able to talk about speciesism with them mm. and uh, maybe uh, start building allyship with them, maybe having them included in our conversations about farmed animals as well in some way. So we're definitely trying to widen our circle that way. And actually, Alia is working on, on something like that in Pakistan right now as well. Elia, do you want to mention uh, a little bit about the grassroots effort? Like, how does that strategy translate into, um, uh, you know, for, for instance, in Pakistan? Right. Um, so 
I will first go back and build on what Ellie said uh, in terms of um, the the way we are looking at um, uh, the way and the reason why we're shifting our observe uh, sorry shifting our focus. Um, it's also dependent on a lot of data that came through to us through our programs itself. Uh, initially, it um, it started off as being inclusive, but over time, our um, data and observations have shifted our strategy itself. So uh, realizing that some countries do not at all have uh, farmed uh, any work for farmed animals at all, no funding, no projects. Um, and uh, going back to um, one of our projects that we did recently, we might have a chance to build on it uh, later on as well, which was the forums in which we uh, identified uh, different stages of the movement itself. And we realized that a lot of countries uh, are in very initial stages of the movement. And we might need to focus and strategize differently for, for all of those, depending, depending on um, the, the country's um, issues and the problems they're facing and the, the stage they're at. Uh, and coming to the Pakistan uh, grassroots challenges, um, it's the strategy for Pakistan for me uh, that I've uh, like, sorry, what Ellie just mentioned, and I will build on that. Uh, the, there is a lot of work for uh, pets, uh, companion animals, wild, um, not too much for wildlife, but good enough for wildlife and zero work for any farmed animals uh, right now. So uh, we see that there are no grassroots movements here for uh, farmed animals uh, or for um, addressing the idea of speciesism itself, um, let alone veganism or direct action or anything of that sort or protests. Um, so far, we've only seen uh, protests against dog culling and zoos um, in small pockets. So it, these are some challenges that we've uh, seen. And of course, these are directly related to political issues and the country's educational systems and so on. Like we discussed earlier, there are a lot of layers that have affected and uh, brought us to the stage where there is no movement for the animals. And so we have to strategize accordingly for each country and build a movement from uh, the ground all, all over uh, like in the forums you uh, forum report you will see that some countries where we did have a conversation mostly um, if we categorize them um, in uh, in the eight stages of movement they're at three the maximum we look at it as three so we are yet to see movements growing in Asia so it's very complicated in terms of um different countries and the whole um, um sorry the whole macro scale of asia itself yeah ab absolutely so you know it it just baffles me that there is so at times you know people who call themselves animal lovers and and they go out and do amazing work with rescuing companion animals that might have been treated badly abandoned and so on and yet they continue to have animals on their menu. And, and you know, both uh, Ellie and yourself have, you know, mentioned the convergence of, it's almost like a Venn diagram, you know, where there's, there's some vegans, who, uh, you know, all vegans love animals and they love animals indiscriminately, you know, regardless of the use animal, uh, human beings ascribed to them. And then you have companion animal activists who may or may not connect those dots and, and how some of your efforts are helping that. Um, however, and when I what I started with really was that it baffles me that there's 0, 0.0 support for um, farmed animals. And, and obviously um, that that is in, intensely complicated. You know, it's tied in with uh, the perception of food 
and and you know asia is also one of the big hotspots where there's a lot of not just nutritional insecurity but there's a huge burden of global hunger that resides in asia um and just the other day i was at a conference where i heard a preeminent um you know uh, food politics expert actually say that no 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 i i'm i might be um you know more or less vegan myself, but I really believe that an animal inclusive diet would help people in deep poverty in the global majority. And I was like, what? You know, I did kind of a double take even there. So I can totally understand that if from, you know, within the voices that um, are sort of so close to veganism here in the West, you know, if when they think of people in deep poverty, they believe that some amount of animal foods might be you know better for them you can well imagine how the food systems and and the politics you know in asia have shaped uh the perception around needing animal foods to survive um let me actually you know we have about 15 minutes to go but i really wanted to touch upon yet another convergence you know your animal alliance asia clearly given your name and also your strategic focus now you're focusing you know on animals and, and specifically farm animals um do you also like how do you rub shoulders with um you know people in the environmentalism movement um you know planetary health movement and also people who are in lifestyle medicine, you know, people who are really sort of focused on veganism or plant-based eating from a public health and reversal of chronic illness standpoint. Do you leverage some of that logic in your communications? If so, how do you do it with the endpoint of serving animals? I hope that makes sense. Sure, thank you so much for going through this. Um, so as I said earlier, like we have four maybe we skip that actually but you you have that on, on your slide we do have four core values at aaa and we always always come back to these four whenever we make decisions or when we communicate internally or externally so these are <clears throat> openness to change and learning inclusion non-violence and anti-oppression and when it comes to who we include yes we are very inclusive we want to build allyship with other movements, other social justice movements, so we can learn from them, they can learn from us, and together we can make a more peaceful, kind world together. That, that's something we really believe in. So we've been working on building allyship and solidarity with other movements in the region, for sure, including environmentalists, uh, <clears throat> climate justice folks, for sure. And um, when you mentioned food injustice, that is, one of the the key areas that we're definitely looking at as well and uh, being open to change and learning is one of our core values and when it comes to vegan messages and slogans and what kind of tone we're going to put out there through our social media and campaigns we're open to learning from the local advocates as well so for example in countries like the philippines we have been told that sometimes meat and fish cost much less than vegetables a lot of people don't even have um, access to their own kitchen facilities so they have to buy food from food stalls they're all meat and fish you know so you can't just go to the philippines and say go vegan i've done it you can do it too no you can't it, the situation is starkly different so we have to really adjust to each country's context and learn from them what what can we do with that community on the ground to make this world a kinder place for everybody including all animals so th these are the values that we really hold dear to ourselves um, whatever we do in each country we come back to these i hope that makes sense it makes total sense. And thank you so much for explaining it the way you did, um, Ellie. It was just brilliant. Because here's the other thing. Given the wealth and the average income of, you know, the vegan audiences in the West and specifically North America and Western Europe, it it is beyond a lot of, um, you know, uh, this population's imagination. Uh, you know this whole idea of access and affordability, and that and and that 
fruits and vegetables, nuts and legumes would actually be more expensive um, versus just getting meat and fish. And, and sometimes that exclusively, that's the only thing that people have in the name of food um, that they have access to. And, and the Philippines being an excellent example. And there's just so many other examples in parts of Asia, parts of Africa, parts of Latin America as well. And, and even in the US, when we talk about food deserts, you know, there's a lot of conversation around food apartheid, you know, which is another term, terminology that accounts for the colonialist uh, tendencies and, and some other, you know, uh, complex layers and race relations, et cetera, in North America. But when you look at Asia, I reckon that the same terminology applies, you know, it's, it's almost as though you know, like vast tracts of the continents, continent has been turned into food deserts. Like if, if anything and everything that somebody can afford easily is just meat and fish, then that is a food desert because it's species inappropriate food for those humans in, in the Philippines, uh, as, as you mentioned. Yeah, definitely. And I'm just going to add that uh, coming back to our values, like we are anti-oppression as well, any forms of oppression. And when it comes to who we include in our discussion, we do also want to include farmers, stakeholders in the animal agriculture industry, people who work in the fishing industry in the Philippines, Japan, we want to include them in our movement because they are the key, yeah. key players in our movement. Without them, we won't succeed. Um, so that is another, another element that we're, we're definitely trying to focus on as well. Yeah, you know, so well, I'm I'm really curious to sort of know how does it work, right? We have a lot of news in the media, at least in the vegan media and the plant-based media, where um, you know, a 45-acre mega farm in Colorado is actually now only you know they're transitioning out from meat and then they're only exclusively focused on mushrooms, you know, so they're going to become a mega mushroom farm instead of a meat farm. And, and it was just like doing the rounds in, in the vegan media in North America the other day. And, 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 you know, given the CAFO situation and the factory farms and the scale at which at least the meat, you know, the, the ranchers and, and the dairy farmers operate here, um, you can imagine that there are people with a lot of resources and a lot of lobbying power. And that is not the case for the fishermen and for the um, animal agricultural workers uh, throughout Asia. And it's really interesting for you to say that you want them to be included in the Animal Alliance Asia movement and, and your strategy. How do you do that? Because oftentimes these are people at the bottom of the totem pole, you know, they don't have the privilege of even basic education and literacy and numeracy skills. So how do you include them in the conversation? Do you have people specifically trained, uh, you know, for that? So I, I have a lot of questions. I know we're going to run out of time, but I, I do want to talk about that while we still have you with us. Yeah, sure, definitely. Um, this is something we're still working on uh, through our research and forum to really understand what we can do with them. But there have been some success, successful cases uh, in, for example, in South Korea. Uh, we can't take credit for that. It was uh, HSI. They have worked with local dog meat farmers and they have now <clears throat> successfully uh, transitioned into like fruit farming, I think. So on a small scale, when it's not factory farming, I think there are a lot of things you can do with them, uh, yeah. as long as the alternative livelihood is viable and attractive. Um, Alia, anything to add from Pakistan perspective? Yes, thank you. Uh, just a uh, short bit. Um, there, if, if you look at uh, India, Pakistan, Nepal, these areas, um, I'm well versed in Pakistan, of course. But there are a lot of informal sectors of the meat and dairy industry, unlike the West, where we have uh, in the West, we have these huge factory farms. And they're uh, like you said, they're corporates and they lobby. And then, you know, people tell them to transition at a mass scale. Here you have people with two cows, five chickens. You know, there are small groups. And um, to focus on those transitions, we really have to think in terms of grassroots. Yeah. We have to think in terms of uh, grassroots transitions uh, for these uh, small informal farmers, because um, I saw this documentary recently and it said 80, in India, 
80% of the milk comes from informal sectors. Yes, uh, so it's if we look at the proportions, then that means that our strategies for uh, Asia needs to be very different, even in terms of um, Kate, uh, addressing food injustice. Yep. Absolutely. You're so right. You know, the backbone of the Indian dairy industry is cooperatives and, and on an average people own between five cows to five buffaloes. Um, I want to quickly switch, you know, before we run out of time uh, to your research and outreach efforts, um, you know, and especially during the pandemic, you guys have really, really managed to connect the world's largest continent using technology, you know, with the virus sort of, you know, roaming the outdoors but you've been at it so so tell us a little bit about your research efforts and i and i hear that you guys just concluded a really important um uh you know in-depth qualitative research so ellie if you can go over that a little bit for us um i think Anya, did you want to go yeah. for this part did you want to talk about it sorry i was on mute yes thank you um so let's uh, w one of the things that we did recently was, uh, like I mentioned, uh, was the uh, forum uh, that we conducted in different countries. And that has been key, although the findings of that are, um, they have their its limitations and because they were based on conversations uh, as opposed to um, survey forms being filled by different people. They're, uh, they're, they might differ in some perspectives, but the, it gave us a whole sense of um, the movement in and around, um, sorry, within Asia. So when we, the, one of the reasons was to um, address the ongoing global inequality uh, in funding that we're facing. Mm -hmm. uh, we see that there has been a lot of funding coming in to Asia, but somehow we, we find that they're not being um, <clears throat> channeled to the people who might be able to make an impact. So keeping this in mind, uh, we started speaking to uh, local advocates in 10 different countries. Um, Ellie herself has been on ground and she spoke to so many different people, interviewing them, um, and also our country coordinators and me, everyone, we took a lead on this. And this was to understand what are the current issues, where are the gaps in the movement, is there anything we can do for them in terms of uh, uh, providing them with certain resources? Are the resources uh, fine? Uh, are the resources that they need financial or some other sort? Because there are so many questions when it comes to also resources. Some organizations don't need financial resource; they need training. Yeah. So we needed to know this. We so we started asking all of these questions, and uh, we did get some sort of idea. Um, about this. And um, yes, so this is what I wanted to say. Did I miss something, Ellie? Do you want to add on to this? Yeah, sure. So thank you. You were very thorough and I know I'm conscious of time as well. But through this research and forum project, one of the key gaps that we have identified is definitely uh, grants and funding. Uh, people on the ground desperately need funding and that is why we have just launched our re-granting project so we will we have partnered with international grant making organizations we'll have a pool of funds with us and our country coordinators will curate which initiatives or organizations or even individuals in each country that we want to fund uh, who will be making impact on the ground depending on the, the findings from the forum, what's needed in that specific country. So it's going to look very different from country to country, but I'm really excited for this opportunity that we can actually financially uh, support initiatives on the ground from now on. Yeah, um, I, I have a couple of questions, you know, the quick questions. Now, do you offer grants to smaller organizations um, who fall under the purview of your work as in so how, how does it work? Like, do you receive the grants yourselves and then um, disperse them onwards? Or do you, are, are you the end recipient of these funds and the grants and then uh, invest them in training? Like, how does it work? Or, or do you follow a hybrid model? Hybrid, I would say. So depending on the partner that we have, 
international funding partner, they might have different requirements uh, with us. So we will have to stick to what, what they want from this uh, grant. But most of the time, I'm hoping that we'll have the autonomy to decide who we think are in making an impact on the ground, depending on our cultural uh, findings. Um, but at the same time, yes, training, mentorship, we provide that through our all of our projects, like academy, uh, leadership training, a, a conference. We will encourage local activists to come up with their ideas for a project. We'll mentor them, help them strategize so their ideas become a project. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. You know, I have a feeling I could have just spoken with you for hours and, and really listened to all the different work that you're doing, uh, which is much, much needed. Thank you so much, Ellie and Elia, for creating this much needed, very relevant, especially, you know, during and after the pandemic. It's, it's just so needed, you know, amazing movement in Asia, a continent that's so close to my heart. So thank you so much for spending your time here with us. It's been a pleasure and truly an honor. And I look forward to following your work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Navy, for having us. Thank you.